0: I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome my phenomenal friend, Veronica Monet. Veronica is truly an amazing woman with such a rich story and background and incredible work that she does to enable healing in some of the more stigmatized areas. Veronica is a trained domestic violence counselor, certified sexologist and anger management specialist who works with couples who want to argue less and enjoy better sex. She was previously a high-end escort for 14 years she is a rape and incest survivor. She's a sexual rights activist. She's the creator of the Safe and Sensual Training Program and an author. She is a true trailblazer, speaking truth of sexual rights. In our discussion today, we get into some pretty incredible topics, including sexual healing and awakening, integrating the shadow self, the benefits and downsides to sex work, her personal experience of addiction and recovery, and how to start a masturbation meditation practice. I hope you enjoy this remarkable and stimulating and kind of surprising conversation in such wonderful ways. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hello, Veronica, and welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Oh, I'm so, so happy to be here, Whitney. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I am really excited to have this conversation with you. There are so many things to talk about, We've talked a few times and for a long period because you're fascinating and your work is just incredible. And there's so much that you've experienced and done in your life that what I really admire and respect about you is that it's things that are often considered, you know, people don't always talk about it. There are things that are reality, but people are fearful to open up about it because, of what is a big theme in your work is because of shame.
1: Yes. You know, my business coach says she loves that I deal with the shadow side. That is almost exclusively what I deal with. It's the things that are hidden. And uh, it's interesting. I, I had a, I have a relationship with animals. A lot of times I get messages through them. And one of the messages I got was that there was something about me that was kind of like a woodpecker. And I couldn't figure out what that was because I went to all the animal medicine cards and there was nothing about woodpeckers, but a friend of mine, who's a witch, finally found something about woodpeckers. And she said, you know, there's two things about them. They have an uncommon flight pattern and they relentlessly hammer on wood, making what people feel are destructive and annoying annoying sounds. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is they're preserving the life of that tree by digging the bugs that are killing it out. And in a lot of ways, that's that's my that's my calling. It's one of the things that I do here is help surface things that are harming my clients so that they can heal.
0: Yes. Wow. I love the way that you put that. And that's such a, a beautiful metaphor for the work that anyone who's a healer or a therapist or whatever it might be, you really are kind of opening up for those things to come out so there can be health within the, the beam and the body.
1: Yes and there's a lot of therapists who haven't done their work yet. So uh, it's fascinating when I have clients who come to see me to be in the shame free zone who also have a therapist but will never tell their therapist the things they're going to tell me. People have admitted and confessed if you want to say so many things to me and it's a it's a huge it's a huge privilege as far as I'm concerned, for people to trust me that much. Uh, A client yesterday was just saying, you know, I tell you things, I will never tell another living soul. And I I don't even know why I tell you, I just know I'm safe. And I go, you are, you are safe.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's truly incredible. And I believe that the more outlets we have for, for humans to be able to speak honestly and openly, the less shame and trauma we hold and the less impact of those of that shame and trauma we experience because it's those things that we hold within that just really fester.
1: Well, when I talk about doing your work, it, you've got to dig into your own shadow side. And so we've got kind of this cultural narrative that really prevents us from doing that unless you're really stubborn like I am. And the cultural narrative is that we've got good people and bad people. We have victims and we have perpetrators. We have this polarity in our culture. And we're always trying to find who's right, who's wrong, mm-hmm. who wins, who loses. All of those dichotomies that's just so destructive to our social fabric, so destructive to our relationships, so destructive to the way we relate to ourselves. And uh, I know you and I were uh, talking about internal family systems earlier, and I, I just, uh, uh richard swartz excuse me richard swartz um, program internal family systems ifs for short i think it's brilliant um i'm a psychology graduate from oregon state university and we never had that when i was getting my degree and mm-hmm. uh, i'm just so thrilled with this new paradigm that he's brought forward and i also think it's very interesting that van der kolk references that in his new york times best-selling book uh the body keeps the score it, he references ifs is a much more effective way to heal trauma than something like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So one of the things for your listeners, just to to say, what is IFS? It's really about focusing on our different parts. And we have these different parts. Some of them we don't want to have. We, We have hostile feelings towards them. We maybe judge them. We think they're bad or wrong or destructive. And IFS is really predicated upon embracing and loving and making friends with those parts. And look, I, I, I find that difficult. I have parts that I have wanted to reject, but as, as I, as I love all parts of me, I find that I have a bigger and bigger container to love all parts of other human beings, particularly my clients. And I think that, um, If somebody is able to tell you that they have committed a crime or they've done something that created harm for another human being, and if some part of you kind of flinches with judgment, kind of recoils, that's really a reflection of the parts of yourself that you still can't really love and accept. That's Mm -hmm. how I look at it. Now, maybe that's just me. I don't want to superimpose that. No, absolutely. I, I love that perspective. And it's the same one
0: that I hold is that as, as long as there's part of us that we are trying to push away and and deny then we we literally we can't be integrated we can't be fully expressive because we've we're pushing away and denying something that is of us you know we can't there's no nothing that's ever happened to us nothing we've ever done that we can just kind of cut out and say oh, I'm going to get rid of that part and just I don't like that part so much
1: <laughs> so I'm going to Well yeah. and, and I see you as a very unique therapist because that you know, you know this as well as I do. When you're getting your degree in psychology, there is a lot of hierarchy, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think that was because the field of psychology was so uh, deprecated at its at its outset when it was being invented. Uh, it wasn't considered a true science. It wasn't considered true medicine, and there was so much effort to try to be accepted. Um, and respected that that I I didn't even enjoy all the classes that I had to study psychology because it was all this this vaunting of these old white men. Um, and I was like I I ended up taking all the required for a sociology degree too. And I enjoyed it a lot better because it was a study of relationships. It was a study of how people yeah. interact with each other. But I I think that um, getting to that place where we don't have a hierarchy. And this is one of the things that I think is awesome about IFS because they get down there with their clients and they work with their own parts with their clients. And I I know my IFS therapist is often saying, well, one of my parts really likes what you're saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love it. And then she'll check in with herself and she'll say, well, let me check and see if one of my parts is having a reaction to what you said. I think that's so important when we're trying to help others to really be monitoring our projections, our, um, um, allergies to certain things. Yeah. So we, so we could build this big container of love and acceptance because that's the only way we heal. Totally. We heal.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the inner child thing is so key because it's also about acknowledging it's okay to have certain responses in various situations. That's another thing. I think we often say, Oh my gosh, why am I, Having this emotion, why am I responding this way? And when we don't have compassion for that, we again we reject and short, sort of shame ourselves and say, "Oh, I, that's not appropriate." Well, there's nothing that we could do that's not appropriate in terms of it's coming from somewhere. You know, it's coming when you're when we're when we're acting out of our inner child. It's because there's part of us that at one time was hurt and unfulfilled, and it's just looking for a little bit of acknowledgement. It's having a reaction because it was it was wounded at one point. And that that wounding of ourselves doesn't just go away. And again, that's why I love your, your work. And since you're doing it in your, your own unique style that really allows the person to, without any too rigid of structures, just to get to it and allow the person to see it and acknowledge it and speak of it.
1: Absolutely. That's why I founded the Shame Free Zone. <laughs> yes,
0: and tell us, tell us about that because what a fantastic place! I would
1: <laughs> I'd love to spend more time in the Shame Free Zone. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating because I think the I think the the genesis of the Shame Free Zone really starts back in my childhood. I was born into a conservative, doomsday religious cult. Oh. And uh, it was called the Worldwide Church of God. It was founded by a journalist by the name of Herbert W. Armstrong. I always think it's so funny how cults seem to be founded by people who were just frustrated in their career and decided to get money as a church leader. That's basically what he did. He became so dogmatic and rigid and authoritarian. And this church shamed us about everything. As recently as five years ago, I took my mother who had advanced dementia at the time. She still does, by the way, but she can't even go to church. She's so far gone. But at the time, she could still go to church. And I took her to church, same cult that she was, you know, bringing to me as a child. And this pastor just got up there and started vilifying Oprah, meditation, yoga, um, Deepak Chopra, they were all from Satan. And he literally said, if you close your eyes and breathe, you're converting with the demons. And I realized now at this age, you know, sometimes you kind of have to reacquaint yourself with what happened as your child. I go, that's so shaming. It's so fear-based and it's so shaming. And, you know, there were all kinds of other things too. We had lots of rules around what we could eat and what we could wear and how we could look and our sexual behavior and our relationship um, realities. It was all shamed and heavily controlled. Mm -hmm. So I think that my first response to that was not a response. It was a reaction. When I left home, I rebelled. I dove deep into drugs and alcohol. Um, And I I still went to college and graduated with honors degree in psychology. While you were in your, were you? Oh my God. Yes. I had to make all these bargains with my disease of alcoholism. (laughs) I was like, I would say, read these 300 pages and then you can chug that quart of beer. So I, I allowed myself to get drunk alone in my dorm room if I didn't go to the party. That was, that's how I managed it. The day I, that they put my diploma in the palm of my hand, the first thought that crossed my mind was, hallelujah, I get to drink every day now. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, I, I went back to my uh, apartment. I was living in an apartment at the time. I got so plastered that I blacked out most of it. And I feel so, so sad when I remember that, because my mother was there and I, I don't know how she put up with me. Um, <laughs> So, so that's, that's what I did first. Mm -hmm. And after I graduated from college, I had a couple different management position jobs in um, Silicon Valley. I moved to the Bay area with my boyfriend, uh, worked for some computer companies and I did well, uh, got promotions, um, which was an awards, you know, uh, which was kind of ironic because I, I was, just really stepping fully into my alcoholism and drug addiction, blacking out on the weekends and showing up for work on the week. And of course that's only going to last so long. So at some point um, I came to work drunk. That was fun. Uh, one of my coworkers said, "Starting early today, aren't you? And I thought that enough time had passed that I wouldn't be drunk anymore, but I almost went off the side of the road on to wait to work. Um, I did end up getting fired at some point. I totaled my car. I got a DUI. Uh, There was just horrific domestic violence going on in my relationship with my fiance, who Mm -hmm. was at at this point, we were dealing hard drugs like cocaine and uh, speed. That was my bottom. That was my bottom. I, I remember, I went to see a psychologist through my HMO and I said, you gotta help me every weekend. There's some kind of an emergency vehicle at our door. It's, the cops, it's the firemen, it's the the ambulance. I don't know what to do. And he goes, lady, I couldn't believe it. I was 25 years age. He's older than me and he calls me lady. And I was, that really stuck in my craw. I was like, who do you think he is? He goes, lady, you're an alcoholic and I'm you, ready right to deal with that. I can't help you. And that was it. He he sent me packing. He, he wouldn't even talk to me. And I left his office and I was so upset. And I thought, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. So um, I went home. And decided that I wasn't going to have a drink for 30 days just to prove that I'm not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And during that time, I had one line of cocaine and I realized I maybe really want to have a drink of alcohol. So I thought, oh, darn it. I guess I can't do cocaine during this month that I'm proving <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic either. <laughs> so for 30 days, I did not have a drink. And then I, I finally decided 30 days. I'm obviously not an alcoholic. That guy was full of it. So I'm going to have one drink and show how much I can control myself. And I had, I ordered a coffee drink. I took one sip of it. I thought it was disgusting. And so I ordered a mineral water and felt so, self righteous. I waited a whole week. It was a hot, sunny day. I had worked really hard and I thought I deserved one Michelob dark. So I had one make a dark while the rest of my friends got really, really loaded. And again, I felt so good about myself, Whitney. So guess what happens week three? I'll what? bet you can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I can because I think it's the exact story I've lived. But tell know, week <laughs>
1: three, Week three, I shot cocaine into my veins with a, heart, a biker shared a needle. Very first time I ever used a needle in my entire life. And that was three weeks after proving to myself that I wasn't a drunk. Right. Yeah. So it's a progressive cunning and baffling disease and I have no control over it. And thank God within a few months, probably six months later, I was down on my knees asking my higher power, please help me get sober. And I went into a 12-step program and been there now for 35 years. 35 years. Congratulations.
0: 35? 35. That, yeah. That's uh, how old I am. So you've had my whole lifetime of <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I've worked 12 step in just about every 12 step program that exists. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, because you know, when, as we know, once you get sober, the, that's the work starts then Yes. You know, it's, it's a huge, huge step. Yet, you know, you start to feel, you thaw out and it's not always pleasant and it's not always the end of addictions, (laughs) you know, substances are far from the only things that we are addicted to.
1: Oh, the first, first year that I was clean and sober from drugs and alcohol, I was smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes a day and having sex with every guy in the AA meeting. (laughs) (laughs) So... <laughs> but you know, I didn't drink. <laughs> you didn't? That's good. That's a big step. You it know? was a big step. And, and gradually, you know, you let go of the sugar addictions and the sex addictions and the. Exactly. I was going to say ha- sugar and, and ha- hopefully coke. the cigarette addictions.
0: How have you moved through your sobriety and what? You know there there definitely is an, an opening up that happens when we get sober, right? We we sort of move out of this, I, I describe it as a hole. You know, we hit bottom, we are literally in this hole where it's like, I can't go down any further. I, I'm stuck in this place and I'm miserable and I'm trapped and I feel imprisoned by this addiction. But then we stop but we're still in that hole and we have to get ourselves out. So what was your sort of progression of taking those steps forward towards health? And, and your, when, what kind of work did you move into and sort of finding your purpose?
1: Therapy was absolutely essential. I discovered that I was an incest and rape survivor. It's it's a fascinating how we can be in denial about things or we just say it's not an important thing. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a thing, but it's not really affecting my life. And then when you get sober, you realize you were trying to cover it up with drugs and alcohol. I was, I I got into intense therapy, group therapy, all kinds of uh, therapy models Did that for four solid years, really made a lot of headway, really started to heal myself, stopped having all that promiscuous sex. Uh, Not that I gave up sex by any stretch of the imagination. I moved into a place where I didn't feel any shame around sexuality, but it wasn't compulsive anymore. And um, I was taking care of myself and valuing myself, and valuing my body. What I did next will utterly probably shock you and your listeners but hang on, let me help you explain, help you understand what it was like for me. And, and before I tell you, I just want to say what I'm going to share is my journey. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all asserting that it's the journey of anybody else, nor that it should be. It's just been my journey. So I, I ended up finding out that I was bisexual, Now, how did I do that? Well, I was dating this guy who was a stripper and his girlfriend was a stripper. It was a poly situation, polyamory. And, um, she took me down to a, um, a strip club and thought, you know, maybe I could interview to, to do stripping. And I walk in and I see it's so depressing. It's so gloomy. It's not at all. Like my boyfriend's job is like, There's all these grandmothers and bride to be celebrating their life events. They're celebrating their 80th birthday or the fact that they're going to get married. And they come and they have a party with their girlfriends. The lights are up. The guys are, they're a dance troupe. They got motorcycles and guitars on stage. It's, It's such a production. It's such a celebration. It's so beautiful and exciting. And then I go see where his girlfriend works which was the Mitchell brothers in San Francisco. And it's dark and it's gloomy and the women come out one by one and the men are all sitting there. It looked to me like they were all in trench coats, full of sexual shame. Um, And then afterwards, the only ways the girls can make their money is to go sit on their laps. And I just thought this would be like stepping right back into my father's home and reenacting how I was molested as a child. I'm not going to put myself through this. And, and I, this is horrible. And the feminist in me was outraged that there was such a discrepancy between what it meant to be a male stripper and a female stripper. And I, and I realize some people may not like this word stripper. They might prefer the word dancer. That's fine. Erotic dancer, exotic dancer, um, whatever word works for you. Um, I guess because I am the shame zone. I, I don't, always use the words to kind of elevate something and make it seem fancier than, than it was. I was totally ready to strip. I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be a way of celebrating my body, but this was not the way to do it. Mm. So while I was there, one of the women did a dance for me and I got sexually aroused. Now, what I want you to understand is I'd had sex with women a couple of times When I was using and when I just when I first got sober, but I thought it was a stage and it was over. I was just experimenting or something. I didn't think it was my wiring, but what ended up happening, I got sexually aroused and it scared the hell out of me. I drove home crying. I drove home crying because I was so upset that I wasn't going to be quote unquote normal and make my conservative Christian mother happy. Um, so, so this is a big deal. And I, what I ended up doing, this is what I do a lot of times, Whitney, when, when I'm going through something, uh, on a personal level, it often extends out into my politics. So as a, a rape survivor, I volunteered for a center against rape and domestic violence as a bisexual. I started working with an organization, a, a political organization in San Francisco, uh, that was, publishing a magazine called by it was called anything that moves. And uh, it was the first and only national uh, bisexual magazine. And I wrote for that for like five years. And I would go out and I speak about bisexuality in the colleges and um, and other, other places where we were hosted. And I I marched into gay parade. We were at that particular time. This is like early nineties. We're talking like 91. The B- and the T that is in LGBTQ didn't exist. It was just lesbian gay. So we were trying to get that B in there. And I, I just, it you know, it's fun for me to remember that I was part of that. What happened was when I got in touch with my sexuality, I ended up um, falling in lust. I'm not going to say it was love. I have definitely had affection for her. But I fell in lust with a woman who happened to be a high-end escort. and. I never met a person like her before. My feminism said that sex work was degrading, said that it was a way of selling out to the man, to a patriarchy, that it was all about men oppressing women. And I met this woman, and she was eight years older than me, and beautiful and happy. Now, before that, I'd been volunteering for a center against rape domestic violence. It was a bunch of old lesbian hippies that I was hanging out with because the people my age didn't seem interested in politics. And I have always been a political creature. So I meet this woman and she's so much happier than the the other activists that I've been working with who always seem to be angry. And she's got lots of money. She drives a little Mercedes. She's got a husband. She's got three kids. I didn't know sex workers could be like this. I didn't know this was possible. I always thought that prostitution was incredibly demeaning job that was all about drugs and alcohol and here I am I'm four years clean and sober and this woman she's not in a program because she doesn't have a problem but I I never see her even take more than two sips off a glass of wine that's she's a total fitness nut she works out six days a week centerfold miss petite california one year I, it was just a new person, a new kind of person. I was so impressed that I ended up wanting her to train me how to do her job, and I really was looking at it as a job. At this point in my early sobriety, I still had some credit card debts hanging over my head, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could do what she's doing just for a year, pay off the credit cards, uh, and then I'll I'll go back to my office jobs uh, because at this point I had been working in corporate America for seven years. I had been everything from an office manager to a department manager to a marketing representative for a radio station. I mean, I, I had the college diploma and I had um, a good resume in corporate America. And I, I, you know, Grace standing in Silicon Valley. So here I go, deciding to become a high-end escort. She didn't want to teach me at first. She loved me. You know, we were lovers. She said, I don't want that responsibility. Once you once you start, you're not going to want to stop. And I'm like, well, that's silly. But she was right. So she she finally relented. And the first thing she did was march me down to get my federal ID number so I could pay taxes. <laughs> very, very smart businesswoman, And she taught me how to screen calls. And I learned so much about a part of me that had never been awake. And the part of me that she helped awaken was my feminine intuitive side. I had been very scientific and very logical and really kind of masculine in my thought, my thinking. So I always looked very feminine, but I call it, I usually often refer to myself as a butch and drag because I just had so much masculine energy and masculine thinking uh, and behavior. Uh, And just to be clear, I'm a cisgender female. I was born female, but I just felt like that was part of my bisexuality that I had a lot of masculine traits. So I didn't know anything about tapping into my intuition and all of a sudden, my safety depended on it. I need to be able to tell who was a police officer and who was a, a bad or what we call dirty tricks, a, a guy who might not pay or maybe could become violent or something like that. And I had to tap into parts of myself that had been never, ever, I've got to say, not just dormant, but actually demonized when I was a child. Because don't forget, I grew up in a cult that said, if you close your eyes and breathe, you are talking to Satan. And all of a sudden, I was having to tune in to my inner knowing Mm -hmm. and learn what it means to be an intuitive creature. And on the other side of that, I became more sensual. I became more joyful. And what I learned was that the men who pay for sex... Are just as there's just as many different kinds of men that do that as there are women who do sex work. You cannot stereotype people who do something that you may disapprove of or be unfamiliar with. It would be as ridiculous as saying, Why do people become doctors? Well, some people become doctors because. Their parent was a doctor. Some people become doctors because that was the family dream that they would finally become a doctor. Some people become doctors because they really have a desire to help other people. There's just so many reasons to pursue a career. And I first did it to pay off credit cards, but very quickly realized that this was awakening parts of myself that I really longed to develop. So I'm going to take a breath now because that was a lot. Well, it's
0: a very rich story and it's very unique. And thank you so much for bringing us into this experience because it's one that not many of us understand. And I've, I've met and had many friends who were sex workers. And for the most part, I, I hear, I know it goes both ways, but I've heard positive experiences about just what you said, where you're, when you take away, um, when it's a safe space and what you're really offering, I think is a lot of opening your, your feminine. When you do it as a, a woman, you're opening up yourself to allow another person to feel held in, in a safe, intimate way.
1: About a year into escorting. So I learned what I learned from my girlfriend. I moved to San Francisco. We were both based out of Santa Clara and then I moved to San Francisco and, um, we, we stopped dating each other. We remained friends, but we just stopped dating each other. And I started taking classes from a woman named Cozy Fabian. She was um, in a 12-step program for sobriety. And she also was an escort. And she had studied all the ancient Sanskrit and really loved goddess um culture and was bringing that to us. And so she started teaching this class to the sex workers in San Francisco about sacred prostitution. And I learned to think about my body in a totally different way. One of the beautiful things that she brought forward was something called the ISIS squat. And I've only ever seen it um, in a nature program about bonobos, which are a little known uh, primate. They look like chimpanzees, but they're very much not chimpanzees because their culture is based on matriarchy. Um, so the females are in charge, and they are peaceful, and they have a lot of sex. So I have seen in a nature program. I saw a female bonobo do the isis squat on a male, and it's it's a very powerful uh, sexual position where the female gets on top. And is actually squatting on her haunches so that she's using the power of her thighs. And um, some people would probably say that's unladylike. But uh, the other thing I learned about was uh, that's not an orifice. The vagina is not an orifice. Your rectum is an orifice. Um, There are other orifices in your body, like your ears, your nose. But your vagina is actually, if you happen to own one, is a muscle. And if you use a muscle, it what? Oh, it gets more muscular. So some of the stupid stuff that has been in our culture about women who have a lot of sex or loose women is actually uh, medically contraindicated. The fact is that my girlfriend, who had a lot of sex with her clients, had one of the most muscular vaginas I've ever encountered (laughs) I used to joke that I thought she could probably sign her name with a pencil down there. Um, but it, And she was a mother of three. So I, I started taking pride in this muscle called the vagina. I started having a totally different relationship with it, that it wasn't a resource, first of all. It wasn't property, second of all. And third of all, you cannot damage it through use. First of all, you're not using it. You are expressing it. You're you're um, exercising it. And we have this this ridiculous idea that somehow or another women get used up. And that's so patriarchal and it's so destructive to the psyche and women and it creates a lot of shame. So when I when I realized that I adopted as my patron saint the goddess Lilith. Now, the story about Lilith is that she was the first female that God created in the um, Garden of Eden. And Lilith and Adam would have sex, but Adam wanted her to lie on the bottom in the missionary position, and Lilith wanted to be on top. I'm thinking probably in that ISIS squat that's so unladylike. And um, Adam went complaining to God and said this woman won't lie beneath me and she's got too many opinions and she's too independent and I'm just sick of her. And so what ended up happening according to the story after a lot of you know complaining from Adam is that Lilith was expelled from the garden of Eden for being too independent and too sexual and God created Eve out of Adam's rib and that made her lesser. It made her submissive. It made her maybe just a little bit dumb too, because what what ends up happening is that the snake that tempts Eve in the Garden of Eden is actually um, a form of Lilith. Lilith comes back to tempt her to eat the apple. So, so we, it's just a story. But what I love about Lilith is that she helps me ground in the part of me that is not of the patriarchy, the part of me that is okay. If you need to demonize me, that's all right. But I know that I'm stepping into my power and it's a beautiful creative force and it's about partnership. It's not about submission. It's about partnership.
0: Yeah. And would you say, Veronica, that your your entire career as a high-end escort was a positive experience? <sighs>
1: No, I would not. I'll tell you what was not positive. Towards the very end, I did not respect my intuitive feelings. I knew this client was a bad client, and I took the call anyway, and he turned out to be a serial rapist who was preying on prostitutes. And in my case, I... He very quickly realized this person had a mental disorder and that the only way I was going to get out of his apartment, which was totally set up to all the windows and doors were locked. You couldn't get out to so your prisoner was to uh, go ahead and submit to the rape without resisting, which I did. Uh, and three weeks later, he raped an 18 year old prostitute. She resisted and he stabbed her in the face with a knife. So. Part of my activism as a sex worker rights activist is to say we need to decriminalize prostitution to save lives. Because as at that time, I just want to tell you what happened. I went to uh, Oakland PD to try to report this rape, and they weren't interested in that. They just wanted to arrest me for prostitution. We battled Oakland City Hall for about four years. And it wasn't until we threatened to go to the press and and out them as only interested in popping prostitutes for a little $500 misdemeanor instead of catching a serial rapist, mm-hmm. who was also becoming violent, that they finally took my deposition. Uh, and at the time, that was uh, Mayor um, Jerry Brown uh, was in his office doing a deposition. I had... A sex worker rights activist on one side, and I had a, um, a woman from the San Francisco War on the other side supporting me while I gave my deposition. The most negative thing about that wasn't actually the rape. The most negative thing about that was dealing with law enforcement, trying to get our government to shift their priorities so that we want to catch rapists and murderers, as opposed Prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And that's a battle that is still going on. And I got arrested because I was an activist. I spent 17 years in the public eye on on everything from Fox News to CNN to Bill Maher's Politically Incorrect, profiled in the New York Times as a sex worker rights activist. No longer a sex worker. I stopped uh, in 2004, but I will always be a sex worker rights activist. It's a a really important issue to me. And it's not just about preserving the safety and the lives of sex workers. And by the way, where the government cooperates with sex workers and doesn't arrest them, they are able to apprehend more real criminals, people who are doing violent crimes. So even the sex trafficking worries that we have, if you have the sex worker who doesn't worry about getting arrested, she's more likely to come for help. She's also more likely to report non-consensual sex work. So there's so many reasons to decriminalize and I'm happy to say that uh, the World Health Organization embraces decriminalization. So does Amnesty International and so does the Democratic Socialist Party. Uh, And and I know that recently Kamala Harris, just before she became VP, actually also endorsed that stance. And here in California, we are making strides. I am so excited that Senator Scott Weiner recently introduced legislation, which was passed, which makes it legal for a prostitute to report a rape or an assault without getting arrested. (laughs) You know, it took a lot of years. And I want to—I just want to give a shout out to Maxine Dugan from the Erotic Service Providers Union, who has been working on that tirelessly for years. And I, I got to be there at the press conference as one of the uh, rape survivors who has been speaking out, trying to um, bring awareness to that. So, those were the negative sides. If you want to hear the positive sides, I—I uh, I became a courtesan. I catered to. High-end, very powerful uh, clients who were millionaires and billionaires. And I have got very accustomed to riding around in limousines, eating in five-star um, restaurants, staying in the best hotels, and being uh, treated like a queen. I made a lot of money as a courtesan, and it was a glamorous lifestyle, except when it wasn't.
0: Veronica, thank you so much for sharing your experience and yeah. speaking to that. Because again, I mean, talk about something that's, that occurs or happens to someone and they don't know that it's, it, it doesn't feel safe at all to share it and to inform others about it. So people just hold it in and think that they have to keep it this shameful secret.
1: Well, one of the things that our culture has relentlessly transmitted to us as women is that if we are sexually assaulted, it's our fault, we've done something wrong. And I recently wrote an article about um, rape, which is over on Medium, and it's uh, why she didn't fight or run away. There's a, it's, a, it's a really fascinating area if you start to look at the science around it. One of the things that I think is so important to call out, one research showed that they interviewed convicted rapists who were serving time in prison they showed them a lot of different physical presentations of women, like a woman who was kind of dressed like a conservative librarian and somebody in a sexy, short miniskirt. And they just asked them, uh, who would you target as your victim? And contrary to popular belief, they almost all of them said they'd pick the woman who is conservatively dressed. And when asked why, they said, because that's an easy target. That's that's somebody who's already kind of brought her energy in and maybe shut down. Now, that's just their perception. I'm not saying everybody that dresses conservatively is manifesting that kind of messaging or that kind of energy. But I thought it was really valuable information because we've been told that a woman who dresses scantily or wears, you know, any kind of uh, revealing clothing is somehow or another uh, facilitating her own rape. And I don't know if you remember what the big marches, the slut marches, because there was a Canadian um, uh, um, police officer who had said that if women didn't want to get raped, they should change the way they dress. And this birthed the slut marches that went around the globe, by the way. And a lot of women would show up wearing. Uh, really revealing clothing, standing in solidarity with each other. I think that's so important because we need to be clear on the fact that it doesn't matter what age a woman is, it doesn't matter what she looks like, it doesn't matter how she dresses, it does not matter what she does as a profession, what she does for a living. Any woman can be raped. And You know, statistically, I worked as an escort for 16, no, 14 years, 14 years. I was in college for four years. I got raped in college and I got raped just right after I got out of college. So in a five year period of time, I was raped twice. As a sex worker, I was raped once in 14 years. So, I mean, if you really, for me, how does it live in my body? What where's the risk? Uh, college was really dangerous, you know, and that's just me. I'm not saying that's anybody else's experience. I think that we've got to stop trying to figure out what type of woman gets raped and what kind of a situation causes her to get raped. And we've got to start looking at the problem, which is what is it about the way that we raise boys mm-hmm. that leads to rape?
0: right and what what is the what is the belief that's being held by these people that that in in their own in their mind it seems that they have a right to this they have a right to what they want regardless of the other person's perspective or standpoint
1: i have to tell you i've been raped 3 times once by a college friend once by a coworker and once by a client and all three of those men thought we were friends and wanted to see me again. I just, it's, it's, it's stunning. It's almost as if like there some of these people, I'm not saying all of them, believe me, there's, there's as many different kinds of rapists, by the way, as there are um, men. So let's not, let's not stereotype them either. Let's try to get to know the various different types of rapists and why they do it. And and never forget that they're human, because I really want us to create a a culture moving forward where everybody has an opportunity to heal and to do better. But one of the things that I think does happen for some men is that rape becomes normalized and they don't even think they're raping.
0: Completely. And I'm so glad you're bringing that up because I think that's something that's never addressed because we move so quickly to accusations and punishment towards those individuals rather than a discussion of the circumstances and what happened and what was that person's belief beforehand and what made them think that it was an appropriate or that they were allowed to proceed the way they did, because that's the only way that we truly shift anything is when we have open conversations to gather understanding about various people's standpoints and beliefs. Otherwise, it we move into the shame zone where everything's just brushed over and the person isn't given a chance to speak, they're just labeled as a perpetrator and this isn't to diminish anyone's suffering or pain who's incurred abuse, yet when we don't allow as you said for the the perpetrator to be a human, then they're going to not think of themselves as someone who was uh, was allowed to have done something in their life that they wish they could have done differently and would like to do differently. In the future, and then more people can see that and hear their stories, but we don't allow those people to share their stories.
1: I couldn't agree with you more because we demonize people who yes. commit crimes. Now we don't get to learn anything; we yes. just we just perpetuate. It. You know, one of the things that we learn in twelve step is uh, what you resist persists. And um, another way of looking at something that I learned when I was recovering from domestic violence dynamics in my own life was that if I felt ashamed of something that I did, I was going to re-perpetrate. That, that is just a given. Shame leads to perpetration. So um, when I was being mentored into becoming a nonviolent human being, one of the things, and this was the hardest thing I had to do, was to connect with compassion to the parts of myself that I hate. Like, and to stop hating them, to start trying to understand them, not, not legitimize, not condone, not excuse. That's a very different channel, but find this place of compassion and curiosity. Let's find out what's going on with this part of me that keeps doing this thing. I hate Mm -hmm. and then hate the action, not me. Don't hate me, hate what I did. How do we separate that out and get clear on the fact that I'm not going to do those behaviors anymore? We can't just decide you're not going to drink. We can't just decide that you're not going to be a violent person. It doesn't work that way. I am an anger management coach. And I know that one of the first things I have to do is work with my clients around their shame, help free that up so that they start loving themselves again, and then get really clear on the fact that The behaviors they've been engaging are unacceptable, but they are loved. Mm. And moving from that place, people find the the desire to do better because they they start to love themselves again. They start to feel like they're worth the trouble. I think people do terrible things because they don't think they matter anymore. Mm. And why not? Why not just throw their lives away?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there was an amazing documentary that came out recently by Gabber Mate, The, the wisdom of trauma. Yes. And they have that scene where there's people working in the yard of a prison and they're going up to each individual prisoner and they're allowing them to say what happened to them, what, what they experienced that led to these beliefs as sort of what you just shared that I, I didn't matter. I wasn't worthy. I was abused. So I didn't think it it mattered whether what I did and who I didn't think that I was cared for. So I didn't know how to care about anybody else. And they're speaking this and they're allowed, just as you said, that we are, we are not just because we don't condemn your actions. We're not condoning them, but we're, we understand that it came from, from a, a reason it came from somewhere that even though we don't condone what you did, we don't want to condemn you or demonize you for it because you are human and there's always a chance for rehabilitation and change and if we don't treat humans that way then humans don't get to feel like a human and when people don't feel like human then they really do as you said they'll keep they'll keep doing the same things because well if i'm if i'm a worthless you know horrible human then there's no hope for me and when people lose hope then they lose their sense of of self and then they're not going to be able to move into a place of of health and happiness. And they're not going to be able to conduct themselves in a way that is kind to themselves or others. And unfortunately, I think that's the system that we've created in our society is we don't give people a chance.
1: We have, I mean, you know, it's true. I was raised in a very extreme Christian cult, which shamed us for ridiculous things that most Christians would never have a problem with meditation or yoga. Or candles—it's <laughs> ridiculous—the level of fear in this cult that I was raised in. But it's still true that in this country we have some Christian shaming that that our culture is infused with, regardless of what religion or lack of religion describes you. It really doesn't matter. Maybe you were raised secular, um, maybe you were raised um, Jewish, but there's still in my this is my opinion—we still have some Christian. Shame That's kind of overlaying things so that people are really invested in defending themselves. So oh, I'm not like that person or I, I didn't do anything that bad. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's the place you inhabit, then you don't get to grow and change. You become calcified behind this defense mechanism of trying to defend who you are so that you don't get cast into the bad people, the evil people. Well, you get calcified in fear. Yes, yes. And nothing can grow from
0: fear because it's just that. It's you're frozen. You're frozen in terror and you don't, you're not in touch with the ability to, to grow and embrace yourself, to blossom.
1: Yeah, there, there's no capacity for that. So, so really, one of the things I do for my clients is I say I'm a domestic violence survivor. I'm a domestic violence perpetrator in recovery. I'm somebody who used to have severe issues with road rage. And I, I know how to work with my anger now in a way that's productive and, and helpful. Um, I'm an incest survivor. I'm a sexual assault survivor. Um, and I'm a former sex worker, and I'm in a poly relationship. I'm bisexual. Uh, I'm not ashamed. I love me. Mm-hmm. And and when 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 i but I but I but I use those labels because they're so potent, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. people are afraid of them. Yes. And I'm not saying that we have to wear labels. I'm just saying that I choose to wear those labels to help diffuse the fear and eliminate the shame.
0: And that's so needed and so wonderful. And it, it's truly moving you know, the needle towards a, new, a different experience that humans can have because right now we are so afraid of who we are and what we've done that we don't feel free, but the more that we feel liberated to express and be truthful about who we are and what's happened to us and what we've done, the more we're able to move into a different experience of life where we're not calcified in fear, but we're expressive in love.
1: One of the things I want to surface at this point, Wendy, I think is so key. None of this works if we don't learn healthy boundaries. Mm. So, and that's really lacking. So, so instead of having healthy boundaries in our current culture, we have good people, bad people, good things, bad things. And so then, you know, I work with people from all walks of life, but particularly people that are very educated and and accomplished and um, everybody's got dirty secrets, something that they're hiding, something that they're ashamed of something that they're afraid other people are going to find out about. And if they do, when they lose their job or they're standing in a community and, and it's, it's, it's sad to me, and I realize not everybody can be out like I am. I'm super out. And I do this to try to create freedom for myself and for other people. Mm. Um, but I, I do know that almost everybody's done something that they're ashamed of. And I think that helping people to feel less shame and hopefully no shame is not tipping over into a place where everything's equal and it's all good, I actually value guilt. I'm kind of from the Brene Brown camp around shame and guilt. I see a difference between the two. I think guilt motivates change. Shame causes us to collapse and and then reperpetrate. So if I feel guilty about something, then I just want to address it and go, hey, that's kind of nagging me. What did I do that I don't like? And then figure out how I'm going to do better. And I don't figure out how I'm going to do better by making resolutions. I already know that's not a path to success. And what I do is I find solutions instead of resolutions. And the solutions need to be concrete. Maybe I'll take a training. I'll, I'll read this book. I'll work with my therapist. I'm going to do something in order to change who I am and how I behave. And that's proactive. And what, what's on the other side of that kind of growth is self-esteem. And, and then you start feeling good about yourself and about life, and those successes build on each other. Yes. But it has to have boundaries. See, the boundary with self is that I don't indulge self-pity, but I also don't indulge shame. I don't indulge... Um, the you know the idea that somehow or another I can just will myself to do better. I actually go and have a boundary with myself, which is do something, take a measurable, um, worthwhile action, and then I have to have boundaries with other people. My anger management clients and my domestic violence clients are always shocked to find out that a big part of the program is learning how to assert healthy boundaries, because assertion is the opposite of aggression. And we live in a very aggressive society that does not allow us to have boundaries and does not teach us how to assert in a healthy fashion. But we need that. We do. We do. And, And that's
0: incredible. That's the work that you do with your clients. And speaking of, so you are a certified sexologist, but it sounds that, that that's a, a big umbrella that has a lot of things that fall underneath it because you're <laughs> working with people on all different kinds of things. So I'd love to hear more about the work that you do as a sexologist and just everything that you spoke about, Veronica. You know, It's just this message of freedom. I think a lot about also feeling free to explore and be in touch with our bodies. And that's such a, a deep and, and complex issue, especially for anyone who's a survivor of sexual assault, or even just hasn't learned how to, who might still feel shame, maybe be from their upbringing, maybe from religious tenets early on that don't know how to connect with and experience, sexual enjoyment or pleasure with themselves or others.
1: And that's a big part of the work you do. And I think that's, it is a big part. part. And I, I'm also certified as an anger management coach, and I'm, I'm going to be getting training in IFS here shortly, not, not as a therapist, but as a coach. But um, as a sexologist, I'm I'm certified through the American College of Sexologists. I wrote a sex manual, uh, which was published through Penguin in 2005. It's called Sex Secrets of Escorts. Uh, People wanted me to tell my titillating stories. I refused. I I turned it into a self-help book. It's in the psychology department at the library. It's a self-help book for women who want to be more assertive sexually. So what I'm launching now is something called Safe and Sensual. Uh, And I'm going to launch it for women, Uh, anybody who's woman identified. I think at some point I'm probably going to have two tracks, one for men as well, Uh, because believe it or not, men also suffer sexual assault and not always at the hand of men, sometimes at the hands of women. So I'm I'm real sensitive to bringing this for all genders, but I'm going to start uh, working with women on this. And um, I do actually. To offer my safe and sensual coaching practices, but I'm going to actually be teaching a webinar, and at some point I'll probably become an online training, which funnels into working with me one-on-one. I think that it's so crucial that we first heal from the abuses. It's it's really important. As an incest survivor and a sexual assault survivor, I know that you have to go through a stage of rage. It's so important to get angry is what helps you get back into your body, get connected to your feelings again. I call it sacred rage, and I celebrate it. And I, I like to think of rage as not something we do, it's something we feel. And if you become super, super angry about something and you're, you have anger management skills, meaning you don't act out the anger, but you you, you connect with it in a way that's fruitful and informing, you can actually use it like a wind. I think of a rage as a powerful wind. It's, and it could blow your sails and take your, sail, your sailboat someplace, wherever you wanted to steer it. So it's a powerful force. But at the same time, if you didn't know how to navigate your sailboat, it would just shred your sails and you'd go nowhere. So it's powerful and you need to learn how to work with it. it it's, it's crucial to get into therapy too. So what I'm offering is not that. I'm not offering the therapy. It's, this is for women who have done some of that journey. They have been in therapy. They've been working on their anger. They have gotten contact with how damaging the assault or the incest was. And then on the other side of that, want to reclaim your sexual joy. Want to, want to fully step into your sexual power. Want to have a vibrant sexual reality worth celebrating. That's where I come in. That's where I want to help birth that for people who have suffered any kind of sexual assault or a a Me Too moment, which unfortunately seems to be most of us. The other thing is women who endure. I hate using that word, but it's the reality for Women for some women, some women who are have been married for a long time or they're they're still in love with their husband, still in love with their boyfriend, but they're actually enduring touch that they don't like, enduring sex that they don't enjoy because they love them and they think that this is how they're gonna show their love. And <clears throat> we have to stop doing that. That's that's not good for you, it's not good for the relationship, it's not even good for your partner.
0: Well, those experiences are you know, they're, they're a little bit, uh, you know, small trauma, your body is in a state of your, cause it's a a major act to be having sex with somebody. You have your bodies are on top of one another and to be in a state where your, your mind's constantly saying, I don't really want this. Just keep going. Just that's, you know, even if it's consensual and you're there, it's, it can, it holds in your body at a cellular level the memory of that, that just feels a bit trapped in the experience.
1: And one of the things that I want to bring to down is, is first of all, just re- referencing back Vander Kolk's, the body keeps that's, the score. Oh, okay. you're, even if you think, Hey, it's okay. It's a small mm-hmm. sacrifice, but in the name of love, your body is keeping the score. And what your body is doing is it's learning how to shut down during sex. Yeah. It's learning how to numb out. It's learning how to leave your body. Yeah. you know That's what you're doing. So then let's say you actually do want to have sex and you're excited about the sexual touch and you're excited about the sexual engagement and you're numb. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, partly that got created by tolerating unwanted touch. The other thing is that it really starts to disconnect you from yourself and from your truth and your sexuality is sacred. Mm -hmm. It is the source of your spirituality and your creativity. This is where you live, that kundalini energy that resides at the base of your spine is, to me, it's, it's one of the most beautiful gifts you're given. And you want it, you want to safeguard it. You want to work with it as the beautiful ascendant energy that it has the capacity to be. And this is not to um, pre- prefer certain sex acts over others. You could do this uh, through kink, You could do it in poly, you could do it on a one night stand. Great book to read, Dr. Jenny Wade's Transcendent Sex, where she documents beautiful ascendant sexual experiences that people had who were not trained in it, were not looking for it. Some of them had been married for 40 years, some of them had just met that night. It's a beautiful potential that we never hear about. Sex can be a doorway to the divine. It's not that it should be monogamous or it should be procreative or it should be pair bonding or it could be all those things. It's that you get to choose. You get to tap into what's your reality right now. What's the best thing for you today? And don't stay stuck in a place of this is who I am and this is who I'll always be. Check in with yourself. Find out who you are today. Unfortunately, because of the relationship models that were given, there's a lot of calcification around that too. We're not allowed to communicate with each other as things change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of checking in with yourself, you know, you said, and it's such an important point that when someone's seeking out how to re-engage sexually, it is important to heal first. You know, we want to heal first and then really we can get in touch and, and be active again. How do you start that with people? And does it begin with self sex with masturbation, with with learning just to touch and be with your body and and even relearn, you know, what it's like to feel aroused and to get yourself and what does feel good and safe versus what feels forced or a little bit scary?
1: Absolutely. And and I, I want to take it deeper than that. So let's, let's go to the womb. We all start off life in a womb so far. We um, haven't perfected the test tube baby thing. So we've all started our life off, off in a womb. And regardless of when you think life begins in the womb, I'm not going to get involved in that conversation because I don't even know. That's not my purview. What I do know as a sexologist is that masturbation starts in the womb. I hadn't thought about that. It does. It, it starts there and it's been documented in both a female and a male fetus. Um, and it, it looks... At least in those two instances, especially in the female instance, by the way, the female fetus masturbated to the point of climax, Her whole body shuddered, and then she took a long nap. So, wow, we're having even more fun in there than I realized, just hanging out in <laughs>
0: deep. And- in?
1: I know. You're floating in the amniotic fluid with Get temperature, back there. Control, temperature <laughs> control, no bright lights, and, and the only jarring inputs are whatever's going on in mom's world. Um, yeah. One of the things that I I, I want to point out to people is that it's highly likely I can't say what you did in the womb. I just know what these two people did in the womb. Um, and, and any others that have been documented along the way. I wish there was more research on this. I think it would be so valuable. But a good chance that you did masturbate in the womb. And it really suggests that your sexuality is more primal, more central than even your first breath of air or your first sip of mother's milk. This defines you as a human. And if we can start really looking at our sexuality as this gorgeous gift, it's not uh, an add-on. It's not a trick to get us to procreate. Sure, maybe those are filters you can look at too. But I'm looking at it through your journey with yourself, which I hope is going to be imbued with a spiritual journey with yourself. What do I mean when I say spiritual? Whatever it means to you. I don't care if you if that's religious to you or meditation or yoga or you know or whatever nature walking in nature it's all spiritual as far as I'm concerned it it means really about being fully embodied and connected to yourself and hopefully connected to your source as well for me I do believe in a higher power and I believe in prayer And uh, meditation is a a big part of my life too. But I I teach something called masturbation meditation. So, and and it goes like this. It starts off with simply setting your timer for 10 minutes and laying down on your bed. And you can be fully clothed if you like. You can be naked if you like. You can put your hand under your pants. Whatever feels right to you. You use your dominant hand to cup your genitals. And you just cup them. That's all. You're not trying to stimulate yourself, not trying to get yourself sexually aroused. Quite the opposite. You're trying to ground into this root chakra and really get connected to your genitals. And while you're doing that, you're just going to breathe nice and slow and deep. And you're just going to ask one question to your genitals. Yes, I am actually suggesting you talk to your genitals. And you just simply ask them what do they want you to know? Now, I have had clients discover that they're incest survivors through this practice. So I do want to warn you, it could surface some old trauma. I trust that it will only come if you're ready for it and if it's time. I highly recommend that you keep a journal next to your bed while you're doing this so that you can jot down anything that comes up so you don't forget it, you don't lose it. It's powerful. You might actually find yourself thinking about things that are not sexual maybe frustrations that you have about your career or your relationship or some family issue or the world even. Maybe you'll contact grief and you'll cry about a loss that you really haven't fully connected with. It's all okay. It's all good. It's a beautiful way to start integrating yourself so that your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, and your genitals and your sexuality are all one. They're all connected. They're all integrated. And this is really what we're talking about here is integration. Yes. Yeah. And sh- shame causes parts of us to not integrate, which means then we're, we're, we're kind of limping along. We're not, we're not whole. And that's,
0: that's the healing portion is reintegrating, welcoming those parts of us back welcoming our inner child that felt it needed to go hide away yeah that it can yeah. come back that it's safe throughout our whole discussion it reminds me so much of you know because we talked a lot about the individual's experience but also societal attitudes and behaviors and you know society to a whole is just the macro experience of the individual's micro experience you know we when we as a as a society decide to blacklist and condemn certain people it's just like us as individuals, trying to do that to parts of ourselves. It's the same thing. A society can't be fully flourishing without welcoming everybody, no matter what.
1: So true. I, you know, I was just watching Gina Davis's film, This Changes Everything, last night. And I found it so inspirational because she, she took a deep dive into how the film industry Um, pushed women out. And I didn't know this, but if you go back to the 1940s, there were a lot of women directors and women screenwriters. And then what ends up happening is patriarchy comes in. It becomes a boys club. The women get pushed out. And even now after the the, um, AFLCU, the American Civil Liberties Union sued, took it to the federal government, there's been all kinds of awareness created. They're supposed to be making changes in Hollywood. I think we still only have like 14% is um, women, 14% of the directors. So, or or actually writers, I think it's fewer than that for the uh, directors. So, and, and one of the things that one of the, the uh, producers was commenting on, this was a male producer. He said, when we opened up and started hiring more women and their goal was to get to 50-50, 50% 50 men, 50% women. The programming got better and they got all kinds of Emmys. And so that really, you know, points to, it's another way of illustrating the point that you're making that when we include all of ourselves, all of society, all of us as humans, and I I would like to say sentient beings that aren't humans too,
0: Mm -hmm. that
1: we actually have a better world to live in we have more not less
0: yes absolutely wow well veronica this has been such an amazing and enlightening conversation i've heard things and perspectives i've never heard before so thank you so much for bringing that to light thank you for bringing so many things to light in the work that you do to allow people to step into the light out of the shadows (laughs) and we'll kind of bring their shadow along right and and allow your shadow (laughs) along your shadow (laughs) is welcome (laughs) <laughs> yeah, totally. And I love that. I'm just picturing you like dancing with people in their shadows, like in the light. And I, what a beautiful image and what amazing work to do. So thank yeah. you for that there. I feel like there's even more to talk about. So we'll have to have you back on the show.
1: I look forward to it. And I just want your listeners to know that if they want to find out more about the exclusive partnership formula or safe and central, they can go over to the shamefreezone.com. That's also uh, got my contact information in there. If you want to reach out to me uh, by phone or email, it was a pleasure. I, Whitney, you are just such um, a beautiful, loving, accepting example of the shamefree zone yourself.
0: Thank you so much, Veronica. Well, I can't wait to, I would love to join the safe and sensual workshop. And I awesome. think many people, when, when is that available? When is does
1: that? Uh, I, I don't have the launch date yet. We're just working okay. on the landing page today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> okay. But when you do, I'll update that in the show notes. So people know,
0: but they'll, they can check out your website and get updated. Awesome. Awesome.
1: And Thank the you. safe Essential coaching program is that's available right now. If you want to just contact me. Great. Thank
0: you so much, Veronica. This has been fantastic.
1: Thank you, Whitney. Take care.
0: That wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guests. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.